Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and writers from across The Athletic. And by listening to us, you can get a 40% discount on subscription. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. And speaking of original and exclusive stories, you wrote one on Friday, David, that got an awful lot of interest <laughs> on social media. So, so this article said, a senior figure told The Athletic it is morally wrong for football to even be discussing playing behind closed doors while the coronavirus is at its peak. Yeah, and at The Athletic, we're speaking to contacts and people we know within the game, at clubs, at associations, all the time. And we accurately have reported stuff before this point, um, such as what went on in the Premier League meeting and various other lines from uh, non-league football, from the higher levels, from UEFA. And again, on this occasion, we reported accurately a growing feeling that that we had established from speaking to uh, Premier League club executives that um, we shouldn't even be thinking about football at this point in time. We should be thinking about the uh, pandemic that's going on. We should be thinking about the healthcare workers and the NHS and um, football should be very much at the back of our minds. And therefore, um, if it's not possible to con- complete the season you know, in a reasonable time, then um, they're leaning towards the season being um, sort of played from scratch, Um, this season being rerun, essentially null and void. They didn't use those words to us. I think according to other reports, the phrase null and void has been been struck off the list of acceptable utterances uh, among Premier League executives, like a three-line whip from from the league itself. but it was very clearly explained to us, and that's why we used quotes within the piece um, from an, an executive, uh, from a chairman. Um, uh, in addition to previous comments we'd seen from West Ham's vice chair, Karen Brady, and um, uh, the Brighton chief executive, Paul Barber. And this chairman was saying that um, continuing the season uh, in the current circumstances is is not an option for him. He's sat very... Um, uneasily with him and crucially he said whatever the the repercussions that this would be his view so essentially there he's saying even if that costs my club more money even if it leads to a a far worse situation for my club than if we continue and complete the season at, at any point then that's my preference and and that's part of the reason why we felt so strongly about running the story Okay, so there, I suppose there are a couple of points uh, around that. Um, you mentioned Karen Brady and Paul Barber, both people who have put their name to the quote or their yep. quotes. So there were lots of people saying to you, why can't you say who said this? So what would you say to those people? Well, I, I don't know why that person didn't put their name to the quotes. And there is a feeling among a number of executives um, who feel similarly. And I don't know why they haven't put their names to quotes. There could be various reasons. One, um, the Premier League wants everybody, all its stakeholders, members, the clubs, executives to sing from the same hymn sheet. And that's potentially the reason why nobody um, that we know about spoke up in the meeting the the previous Thursday um, where they agreed that the allied position was to try and get the season completed. Um, But there are 
couple of things. Feelings are changing all the time. So perhaps this is a developing feeling as the crisis in this country and around the world intensifies. Perhaps it was a feeling that was there all along and these people didn't feel comfortable raising that. Um, perhaps they saw the reaction to Karen Brady's comments and said, I'm not having that come upon me. Um, we should be trusted as journalists and we've got, you know, we're very experienced, professional, and um, I'd like to think we have, you know, the top levels of integrity um, to be able to judge this sort of thing. We're not stupid. We're not going to be played. Um, we, we're, we're not going to sit back and we, we, I have the same feelings as many people who commented on the story. Um, and so do our editors, you know, w what if there are agendas and... Well, that, and that, and that, and I think, David, this is, this is what it boils down to. As, as somebody who just read the article, I have no idea who the person involved is. But if, if the, the anonymous person had said, I think at some point we need to complete the season, I don't think there would have been as much of a discussion, shall we say, about the article as someone saying... Oh, it's you know the growing feeling is amongst the Premier League that it that it needs to be voided. Now, as soon as you, as a punter, as a fan, read that, you think whoever this person is has got to have a vested interest, has got to be somebody who would benefit from the season being voided. And I think that is probably where the backlash, if you want to call it, the discussion, if you want to use a different word came from because yeah, you yourself are saying you've had you you actually have similar feelings to the people who commented yeah and I, I you know there was a lot of talk about anonymity and and I share the views of those who feel um that people should not hide behind anonymity as much as they probably do across the media and it's applicable to sports journalism as well this is an age-old debate you know journalism would not be what it is it would not be possible to do our jobs if people um were not allowed to speak with um on occasion when they feel right and we feel that's acceptable an element of anonymity. Um, now, many people said, come on, this wasn't like a, uh, a secret investigation or something. These are quotes and it's cowardly not to put your name forward. But what would you rather those views be held and you know nothing about it? And you should leave it up to us to evaluate whether it was worthy, whether there were agendas at play. Um, I can say that I don't think there were at all, and I've got reasons why I don't think they were, but I, I think everyone listening will appreciate why we can't go into that, because it would potentially compromise the information and the people involved. And that's why I say I think you should trust us and our journalism on this one. Um, people suggesting it was sensationalist and clickbait. I've been in this job a long time. I know the people that we speak to and that we should trust and not trust. I know a story, we know stories, and we were literally reporting the views of somebody and some people um, on a sensitive subject, and we did that in good faith, and we weighed up all the considerations, and I stand by it entirely, and it's quite interesting that in the subsequent days, other reporters, other media outlets have reported exactly the same thing, some of them also using anonymous quotes from other people. There have been other stories, such as the one that recently broke about the potential for finishing the season in a sort of um, festival of football over June and July in... Um, closely controlled um 
camps and hotels and there were anonymous sources quoted within that as well and no one's raised any eyebrows about those because that's a more i don't know more positive exactly that's yeah. the so, that's the positive so people part. like that story and so they don't question the the anonymous quotes but some people didn't like this story so they do question the anonymous quotes and um it's an emotional time and people are particularly sensitive and perhaps that's why it caused a bigger stir than normal but I stand by it and we would do it exactly the same again and in certain other circumstances I don't think people would have even batted an eyelid at this. Uh, well our first guest might have been preparing for a playoff for Euro 2020 today but for obvious reasons uh, that isn't happening. Uh, we can welcome the assistant coach of the Scottish national team Stephen Reid to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. Hello Stephen. Hi guys. Let, let's actually just talk about the mechanics of coaching. Let's leave this, the, what what is going on in the world to to one side for the moment, and let's get some insight on the difference, really, that you have found between being a coach at international level to when you've been a coach at club level. Well, the, probably the most obvious one is the is the time you actually get with the players, chappers. You know, when you're in the in a club, you you can structure your week. You know that you're going to have your your days when you got your lighter sessions and then you can increase that as the as the week goes on from an international point of view you've just not got that access to the players so probably for argument's sake we had a situation where on our last camp we had an international game on the on the Thursday so the lads a lot of the lads played on the Sunday previous so Monday Tuesday is then pretty much you know, down days, offloaded days where we don't, you know, you you can't do much on the training field. Then Wednesday's a day before a game, which is a which is a light session, and then you play Thursday. Then you got two days of the same recovery and offloaded, and then you get a, a you know a real light session before your next game. So you've you're actually not getting a lot of sessions with the players to to deliver you know, the bigger spaces and tactical work and 11v11s that you might, you, you're going to have to face when you're actually playing the game. So that's probably the most obvious one. And then you've obviously, not so much for myself, but for the manager and the, the performance staff is liaising with the clubs and looking at what the players are used to doing for their clubs. Because when you actually get them, you don't want to be doing a lot of, a lot of training sessions with them that they're not used to doing because you obviously put them at risk of injury then. That's really interesting. So when you then get them together for a national team coaching session, you have to adapt that session to make sure you're not overloading players who might be doing something different at club level. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We've, we've, and I had it myself when I was particularly towards the back end of my career where I even had weeks chappers where I could only train on a on a Thursday or a, or a Friday I had a spell of probably six to seven weeks before I had quite a major knee surgery when I literally played on a Saturday and then wouldn't train again till the following Friday do a little bit and then play on the Saturday and it, it's similar situations that as a coach at international level you're going to have one or two players that can't can't even go out on the training field two days after a game because because of uh, a knee injury or whatever they might be carrying. But so then, but then, St with... but then, Stephen, as a player, so if you were in that situation, if you then went to international level, did you go with your plan and go, look, this is what I'm doing at club level. I can't, 
I, I can't do half the stuff you're expecting me to do here. And was that well received or did they go, well, well, tough, this is how we're training at, at international level? To be honest, I think it's something that's, that's increased over the last few years. When I initially made my Ireland debut and I played under Mick, it wasn't even a, a consideration <laughs> that. You just flew over, you kind of trained, you did what you did. You <laughs> flew over the night before, you had a night out with the squad, you know, a few beers in wherever it might be. There we go in. And you just... You just did what you was told to do but now it's there's so much more sports science involved in it that if I was playing I'm not sure I'd be able to do it and actually after I did have my second knee surgery when I went over to Colorado and had the uh the Dr. Stedman microfracture surgery that I had I, I pretty quickly after that had to retire from international football because those international breaks were the only time that I could get to really give my knees time to recover so it's 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 a difficult one and and now we've got that situation where our head of perf- high performance with Scotland he will liaise and he'll get all the information and distances and intensity of the lads training at their clubs so when they do come and train with us because you've got that situation financially as well you know players break down and in international football then there's that whole who's paying the wages one and I'm sure that they have to be compensated, the club. So it's such a, there's so much more to it now than, than when I was playing international football, that's for sure. Stephen, with the talent pool being relatively limited in Scotland, we hear about this tug of war between club and country, more with Scotland than many other nations over player availability. What's it like for you now being on the other side of that debate from when you were a player and clubs would have wanted you to maybe at times stay away from international duty? Now with Scotland, you want them to come away. That's a great point. Now it's a case of, (laughs) (laughs) you know, from a selfish point of view, when you're a club, when you're in a club and I look back at my, you know, time at Crystal Palace when, when we went in and we played seven games and we had no points, not scored a goal. And, you know, when players are going away, especially key players for for the club, when they're going away for international games, you've got that sort of dilemma, really. And you're thinking, I'm really hoping that they came, come back fully fit. You know, where you, the shoe's on completely the other foot now and you want your strongest team available. You want your strongest players in the squad. Like you say, we've not got the a massive pool of players where maybe with the English FA and, and stronger nations, um, you've got 40 or 50 players that could potentially be in that squad. We've we've got a much tighter and smaller pool than that. So every weekend you're seeing the amount of minutes that players are playing, what minute they came off in, are they going to be available? You know, massive positive for us is probably at the, looking at it now that, Maybe the injuries to, say, John McGinn. You know, when we do actually get to play this international game, whenever it might be played against Israel in the playoffs, he's going to be, you'd like to think he's going to be back fit. Whereas a couple of months ago, it's looking like it's going to be touch and go whether he's going to be fit for the Israel game. So it's it's massive for us that all players, and especially your key players, are available and you're desperate to, to come and meet up and, you obviously got that battle with the clubs in, you know, they're looking at it from their point of view, but we want our strongest players available, of course. Is that your 
dream midfield, McTominay, McGinn and Gilmore. I mean, you mentioned McGinn there, so I'll just throw the other two in there. We got that is that is a position we are blessed with at the minute. We've got strong, you know, strong midfield positions. Obviously, look at look at Billy Gilmore that's absolutely burst on the scene now, and he's got you know he's got to be in contention. He's he's delivering in the last few games that he's played against top opposition in the Premier League, and obviously the cup competitions that he's played. So that is a that is an area where we are strong. Um, Obviously, Scott McTominay's back from injury now. He had that spell where he was out for a couple of months, and John McGinn's probably been one of our key and star performers since we've we've been involved in the management of the team. And you know his goal scoring and his you know his attitude has just been absolutely spot. That is the he typifies the type of player that you want in your international. So loves being there. You know, runs his socks off. Uh, loves being part of it. Leads by example. Um, and that just typifies the type of player and the type of group that you want to that you want to have at international level. Because I've been involved in you know particularly playing, I you know played alongside players that would go away of international football, and it felt to me like it was a bit of a chore for them. Whereas when I was playing with Ireland, there was a togetherness there where players would fly out early to get together and have a bit of a social, but enjoy being in in each other's company. Where you you speak with and you hear about the clicks and egos maybe in England squads in, in years gone by where that wasn't the case. Stephen, we broke the story that Billy Gilmore would be um, playing for the under-21s or selected, called up for the under-21s rather than the um, senior squad during what was meant to be this international break. And a lot of people uh, reacted quite badly, suggesting, no, he has to be in the um, senior squad for this international break. And the information I was getting privately was that, um, you know, Let's not rush this. He's going to be in the senior setup sooner rather than later if he can continues at this trajectory. Uh, it would be more beneficial for him to play matches, get game time for the under-21s than perhaps sit in the stands uh, for the seniors and train with the seniors when actually the training at Chelsea, with all due respect, might be an even higher level with all the international stars. Um, what are your thoughts on him and could this Euros being delayed by a year, if Scotland were to qualify, be perfect timing for Billy Gilmore? Well, he's, he's definitely going to play a part at some stage. You know, I would be speaking out of turn. You don't perform like that, and the performances and the man of the match performance that he's he's put in and and be ignored. He's going to play a part at some stage. But I will add to that though. He still could have been involved in those squads for Israel. He's still, although he's called up to the twenty ones, he's still, you know, obviously all of this happened you know before we got the chance to you know to name the squad and and look forward into those games so he still could have been in that squad but yeah he's it's just a matter of time before before he does play a part and you know that is the and that that can inspire the younger players now no doubt about it that the performance he's putting in is going to inspire hopefully a generation of of young Scottish players and he's seeing what he's doing at that that level that he's doing it at and it's also it's a good thing that it's going to put pressure on the players that are already in that position looking at what he's doing and you know their their performances are going to have to improve as well just to you know to fend off obviously that new talent coming through so it, it can only be a good thing for us and the age that he's doing it as well the confidence that he's showing the the trust from this, his teammates at Chelsea that actually want to give him the ball in difficult situations is you know it's only a, it's only a good thing for us and 
yeah, obviously that Euro is being delayed another another year. You you never know if he develops even further. He could be he could be one of the first names on the team sheet. You never know. I, I think some of the people who've been as a final question, really, Stephen. I think some of the people who've been listening will be maybe surprised at. Um, the intricacies of being an international coach. You talk about the different training sessions. You talk about having to talk to players when they're injured. I'm assuming the sort of man management side of things becomes even greater in between meeting up and on the phone to them. Has it has it surprised you? When I know you were obviously an international footballer, but when you took on this job, were you expecting it to be literally just travelling around the country watching games of football and then meeting meeting up during the international break and coaching the players? Yeah, I was probably... It's, it's quite difficult to, to keep that contact at all times. We obviously go to the games and when I'm going to the games, sometimes I will drop a player a, a message and say that I'm going to a game. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll drop one of the players a message and say the gaffer's going to the game. Um, so there's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of different elements to it. We've got a quite an important tool, um, like a platform called Huddle, which is really important for us now that we can get information sent out to the players about, you know, that's the frustrating thing about this. We played last in November. So for that whole time, we've been, you know, prepping for Israel, Serbia and Norway, you know, just in case whoever it is that we might play in the final. And then all of a sudden, it kind of feels a little bit like you're starting again. You know, he's buzzing and ready for it. We'd waited for so long. I was going up to Scotland more frequently to sit down with the analysts and the manager to to run through it all and get the information to the players. And that's that's probably one of the most important things that we can do at the minute is get all of the tactical and opposition information to the players. So you're not just turning up on day one of a Scotland camp. You're playing Israel in five days and on day one, you're learning about Israel for the first time. You like to now go into the camps and actually pretty much know how the opposition play, who you come up against, uh, how we want to play. You know, when I played and played for Ireland, you'd pretty much turn up and whoever it was you was playing in a few days, you're, you're getting that information a few days before you're playing and which, you know, which actually buys you a little bit of time then. If you already know about the opposition, when you're going into sessions, you almost giving yourself a head start. What's Huddle, by the way, just to end on? Because bear, bear, in mind, bear in mind this weekend I ended up talking to Sean Dyche about House Party, which is a conversation I never, ever thought I would have in these strange times. Is he on it? I speak he, with Dyche quite a lot. Yeah. He's, he's house, me house, yet, so. house Party and um, and his kids have taught him how to use Zoom as well. So so they're two of the things I, I gave Huddle's from my far chat less with exciting Sean, chappers, I'm afraid. What's Huddle? What's Huddle? Huddle's it's kind of like uh it's it's kind of like a Y Scout oh, right, sort of okay. tool or platform where you kind of you can so our analysts will upload a load of you know opposition Israel yeah. Norway Serbia stuff onto Huddle but we can as a coaches edit that as well from where we are okay so we can put arrows and all the fancy little bits and pieces on it and then we'll sort of send it to the analyst to then do it properly. And then send it to the, the players. And, and then it can get yeah. sent to the players. So And uh, they can ask questions on it. You can have feedback one-on-one with the players. You can decide whether you want it sent to the whole group, whether you want it sent cool. to individuals or units or whatever you whatever you sort of want from it, really. And that's that over the last sort of 
five to six months that we've had it, that has been such a massive, you know, it's really is sort of really time consuming at times, but it's, it's so important for especially international football where, you know, a club, you can, you can daily just pull one of the players, you can have your individual meetings, but internationally it's, it's complete, and you can see if the players watch it as well. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that's a useful thing about. So it's it. the more professional so version I'm, of house party, then. Yeah. <laughs> 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 to be honest, most of the lads have probably signed up to house party more than they have to huddle. So, um, well, what would you no, what would you prefer, huddle with the Adelis or house party <laughs> with Sean Dyche? I'm going to get on now. Uh, I, I can't proud. believe he's not invited me. He's not invited me on it. I speak to him probably every week. <laughs> so um, I'm surprised that he ain't. He's not giving me the shout. <laughs> well, I'll leave you to get on house party. Who's with. he been? Who's he doing? Who's he been doing it? With, I don't know. He didn't. He, he wouldn't. Else. He didn't reveal. Yeah, yeah. Me and Sean every night on house party. That's how we roll. Maybe one of his celebrity mates from uh, was it Kasabian? Is it? That's it. Yeah, he's. Uh, What's the the guy with the long hair? Surge, that's his power. Surge. Surge, that's his that's his big mate. Do you want instant with Surge? The very first game at Wembley, the new Wembley, to test that it was all okay for the community. Uh, uh, for for the community day which followed, was a so called celebrity game, and I um uh, and I played in that, and I had to mark Surge from Kasabian. And in the second half of that game, he absolutely skinned me. I went to slide tackle him in, in, in one of the penalty areas. Missed him. I took a divot that was, you know, the size of a small crater out of the Wembley pitch. He turned me inside out. And then and then, and then put the ball past Jamie Theakston into, what position, the, into the goal. Where was you playing? I was centre-half. Where was you at? I was centre-half. In the first half, I'd had to mark Don Goodman and Mark Bright. <laughs> and Mark Bright nearly Ooh. dislocated my shoulder in a in a header, and um, yeah. and and my only third anecdote from from that whole game was that I managed to clear the ball into the second tier at Wembley, which I'm, <laughs> I'm particularly right. proud about. They're not scoring from there. Chad. They're not scoring from there. Sti- exactly, exactly. Play it safe. David was talking earlier on on the pod, you know, about. <laughs> The, the senior figures in football all seem to have very differing views. You know, there, were, there was the, the story last week that we've already talked about with with David about, you know, some wanting the season to, to just be voided. What what do you think? You're involved in it day to day. What's your inclination? From a purely this from a Scotland point of view and international football going for it's going to be such a because there's no way. They said that possibly, well, they've opened a window up in June for the playoff game, which is unlikely that's going to happen because clubs are not going to, we're not going to get the players before the season's finished off. Or And then if you look at September, that's when the Nations League starts. So does that all get pushed back? Because they can't be scrapped because that leads to playoff games for the World Cup that's going to be after the Euros. So you can't just bin that. Do you, do you um, think? Do you think? Just just one on this. Whatever, whatever's decided that because uh, we've had quite a good discussion on coaching and sports science and and the psychological side of things. Do you think football might have to park some of that to one side and go? Yeah, all right. In 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 a normal season, in a normal setting, normal day and age, normal circumstances. Yes, you do need them three days beforehand, and we do need to do this, and we do need to do that. But actually. These are 
these are very abnormal circumstances. So nobody is going to find an ideal situation here and there has to be a compromise. And if it so happens we meet up 36 hours before a game kicks off, we may just have to do that. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. I think the, the way for me to look at doing it would be if it is August, September that this season finishes, then you're going to have to have a break and then you're going to have to work through play through next summer with a gap in between for the Euros and then go all the way through. Because from a physical point of view as well, you can't just have five months off and then bang out all your games in a month. Because if you have six, a usual break for the lads in the summer is four to six weeks and then you're back into a six-week pre-season, you have six or seven pre-season games. I know this is completely different, but you can't just have a five-month break, get the lads together and play three games a week, it, the lads will break down and you've got assets and you've got players that are going to be out of contracts and you're going to have... I, I, it's going to be so difficult to... I think from a legal and a monetary point of view, it is going to have to be finished. But if it wasn't for that, I think you'd be just best off yeah. you know, voiding the season. Because the... Ultimately. Because the debate at the moment just seems to be the club's wishes, the league's wishes, the association's wishes and the money, the TV money. And on the other side of the debate, the country, the health system, um, the the ability to play in terms of medical concerns, etc. I mean, mm. you're a very recently retired player and you're in contact with so many players. What do they actually want, Stephen? Again, it's a it's a mixed it's a mixed bag. Some are just saying, you know, just void it, give the title to Liverpool and whatever position you are, I guess, in the league, that's what stands. Um, it's it's been so many different thoughts and feelings behind it. There's obviously the one now I'm reading yeah. over the last few days about everyone going into a, you know, a camp in either the Midlands or London and just. But then you've got the hotel, then you've got all the catering staff, you've got the cleaners, you've got the medical staff, that all the backup staff that are travelling with the squads. Do the players want to be in a hotel for a month away from their families? And I, I just I just don't see how, how that would work. You know, into some military-style camp and just, you know, bang out all the, re the rest of the games in, in a month. There's so many elements to that and... I'm not sure how that would feel anyway, you know, with, the, with no one there and I, I, I just, yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to please everyone, no matter how it ends up. Yeah. Cheers, Stephen. All right, take care. Do you like beer? Do you like free? Well, how about, and you may have guessed this, free beer. As a valued listener, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash footy and cover just the postage of £4.95. You've got to pay the postage. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's basically 10 free beers. 
Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. So no surprise then that they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 delivers a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. But they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are passionate about the UK craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive. And a beery snack is thrown in, just to top it all off. If you don't like dark beers, choose the light plan. It's easy. All you've got to do, go to www.beer52.com footy to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, Ornstein and Chapman podcast listeners get two extra free beers. Well, next on the Ornstein and Chapman pod, I'm pleased to welcome the Athletics uh, Leeds United writer, Phil Hay. Hiya, Phil. Hi, Phil. Hello, guys. Um, let's, um, before we could, because at, at the moment, the context in talking about Leeds appears to be all about whether they'll get promoted or not. So let's just park that to one side and talk about all the good stuff that they are doing as a club and as a squad to help the community in these difficult times. Let's do that, first of all. Yeah, good idea, I think, because we're kind of going around in circles with the, the old will, they won't they um, get promotion and the, the implications of that. I mean, the, the, the big news at Leeds last week was the, the wage deferral um, that was agreed by the players. Um, and, and they've they've not quite gone first um, in, in English football with that, but they're certainly one of the most prominent clubs to, to get in with an agreed deferral with the players. Um, and as much as, as you would look at that and think that that is a, a decision that's been taken with the squad, which it is, and, and you know, which which only impacts the squad, the, the reason for it, or the reason that was given in, in the statement that Leeds put out, was that it does allow them to pay in full the, the 230-odd members of full-time staff um, who work for the club, and, and also to keep payment going to, to casual matchday staff who would have been banking on money coming in from the final five home games of the season, and, and obviously now, like everybody else, have, have open weekends in front of them. Um, in the communities well, they've had to scale down some of the foundation work, mainly because it involves face-to-face sessions, coaching, school visits and so on. But they are still dealing with disabled students in the city. They are still holding face-to-face meetings with people who do need that daily support. There's been a donation by a number of players to the local food bank who collect outside Ellen Road on match days. And again, you know, had five collections planned before the end of the season and won't be able to to do that and I went down to the food bank to speak to some of the guys who work there and they were saying that, that during a match and or on a match day they, they, they pull in the same amount of food as they would do from one of the big supermarket bins that you'll find in Tesco's or Morrison's or, or anywhere else over the course of a week so it, it's significant um, and on top of that they've, they've also made donations to a local um, elderly charity essentially all the food and you know produce that was left over at Ellen Road and, and was going to go to waste has all been donated um, to them so in, in keeping with a, a lot of clubs at the moment, they are trying their best to, to do the bit, uh, to do their bit, and, and as much as the lockdown allows. I thought um, there were some really interesting reactions uh, to your piece, and and one of them that I saw on on social media was, "Wow, the club have over two hundred plus 
staff. That's remarkable. Now, there, there are two ways of looking at it. One, that seems like a lot of people for a football club to employ. Or secondly, as we've said all the way through this crisis, when talking about football and whether it can go on or not, it emphasises how many people are reliant on the sport. It does, and I think the the debate about money and wages in in football is a little inclined to to focus on the the very top level and and the elite level and the idea is that clubs and players who are already very wealthy or or pulling in a a lot of money are going to suffer in this. But it is the the trickle effect and it's the drip down to the sort of rank and file staff that is making people concerned and I think that's why we're going to see more in the way of wage deferrals. Um, I mean, Leeds said it was a a voluntary deferral on the part of the players. I, I think it's safe to say that had they had the money to, to pay the players and to pay everybody else and to continue you know, operating as normal, then the players would not have put their hand up for this. Um, it was a, a meeting organised by the Chief Executive Angus Kinnear and, and the Director of Football, Victor Otter, last Tuesday with um, a number of senior players that, that got this moving and, and it was agreed quickly within about 24-48 hours because Friday was payday um, and Friday was the day at which the wage bill would have been processed and given that Leeds have a wage bill of somewhere between about 35 and, and 40 million pounds you'd have been talking a good three three and a half million going out of the club so it was done quite urgently in the end but in in the statement that was released they they did make specific mention of you know the rank and file staff who they want to pay in full and and who they want to um to pay as agreed you know to keep their Mm. their salaries going and and you're right that that is the that is the big issue here really aside from anything else there are a huge number of people who are reliant on on football and you know the number of staff employed at Leeds I think gives you some idea of of how vast the business of even a championship club is these days and I think when you get further up the ladder to a club like Liverpool or, or Manchester United you can you can increase that figure again and, and there are an awful lot of people at the moment who'll be concerned about their cash and a, and a lot of people at Leeds who'll be very grateful for the fact that this deferral is going to let them be paid in the meantime. Phil I was speaking to somebody uh, from within football earlier today who said While he's got sympathy for many clubs in this situation who have run their financial operation very prudently and carefully and in actually a reasonable position for now, um, he has less sympathy for clubs like Leeds who have um, gained a lot of positive publicity over their wage deferrals. But actually, um, it doesn't reflect particularly well on some of their operations financially. going for the big time at any expense, bringing in the likes of Helder Costa and um, Jean-Kevin Augustin on big salaries uh, and the fact that they really needed this. Um, does it suggest that some of these clubs are operating too close to the margins, um, that suddenly there's a crisis and they're immediately having to slash the wage bill? Oh, absolutely. Although this this is a pretty exceptional crisis and and 100% unforeseen, but it's not a secret at Leeds that Radrazani has to put in around about a million pound a month to to pay for costs and to cover the expenses. Um, And without that, they they would be in financial difficulty. I mean, the wage bill has almost doubled on, on his watch and he came in in 2017. And they have a huge turnover by championship standards. It's up at around 40, 45 million and they think they can get it over 50 million pounds, which I know in in the context of the Premier League doesn't sound like a a lot of cash, but it is a a, a very successful and slick financial operation at Leeds. But despite that, the the, the wage bill is kicking up to around about 80, 85% of turnover. And and when you're in that position, you're always going to work at a loss, particularly outside the Premier League. Um, So I think to an extent that's fair comment and it is fair to say that Leeds are 
leads are doing this and are going for promotion with the, with money which to a large extent is being stumped up by Radrazani outside of the, the income they draw in themselves. But I do go back to the fact that it is a fairly exceptional um, situation this to say the least and I don't think it was ever the case that, that Leeds were going to fall into, into difficulties or trouble at the drop of the hat but um, something as severe as this and something which looks like shutting down football for, for several months um, if not longer was always going to require some sort of financial ad- adjustment and it doesn't surprise me that they've gone for a wage deferral and it doesn't surprise me that they were they were one of the first in or that they wanted it done before the wage bill um, last week and, and a few people at the club have said to me that by doing this this will keep them right until September October without the need for any sort of significant financial investment from elsewhere On the football side of things I mean this is the other part of, of your article, I spoke to Patrick Bamford last week and boy does he know what's expected of him during during this uh, period of isolation um, they have not surprisingly very detailed plans don't they to keep them in shape they do I mean the the thing that Bielsa is a stickler for away from you know the, the actual ball at feet is the weight of players and the condition and the body fat and everything else they do skinful tests every morning at Thorpe Arch and they're weighed in every morning and that was almost an, an inevitability I was listening to that with Bamford and, and him saying that they'd had to go and buy special scales um, in order to yeah. send in photos every morning of, of what they're weighed at because Bielsa does take great exception to players um, blowing up in weight than putting on a few pounds when they they shouldn't and almost everybody when he was appointed um, a couple of years ago almost every member of the squad was told despite them all thinking that they were pretty much on target weight and the weight they've been told to come back at by previous um, manager they were all told that they needed to shed more and they needed to get the body fat down that, that they needed to reduce the the general um, the general stockiness um so yeah that will be that will be ultra strict and, and when they come back you'll be expecting them to to be in tip-top shape in that sense I think it's more difficult when you're talking about the actual football and, and core match fitness um they, one of his requests when he became manager Bielsa was to have a, a running track installed at, at Thorpe Arch which the club did it's a synthetic track that kind of loops between most of the main pitches and over the last couple of weeks the players have been using that in isolation they've been driving up when nobody else is there and the security teams wave them in they run they get back in the car they drive off without speaking to anybody um, so that they kind of maintain social distancing and, and that I think has been a bonus for them because it's helped them to, to, to maintain something approaching if not match fitness, then you know an athlete's fitness or expected fitness when it comes to running. Whereas at home, and this applies to all clubs, they've got bikes, they've got um, dumbbells, they've got mats. That you know they've they've got tools for um, fitness sessions, but it's nothing like Bielsa's mother ball sessions on a Wednesday afternoon when they go <laughs> eleven v eleven and the ball's constantly in play. Um, and that I think not just for them, but that is going to be the challenge when they come back is to to be able to reach that level again quickly and to be able to perform at the you know with the type of intensity that that Bielsa demands and I think even he is going to have to make some concessions and realize that that is going to take some time when when this does all start up again Phil all things considered and especially financially was there a club uh, more disappointed to have to stop playing than Leeds United no, I don't think so. And I don't think there's a club um, more likely to be stopped from playing by a worldwide vi- virus, which is sweeping in, you know, over the grass <laughs> of Thorpe Arch. It's, it's that, you know, that feeling of, of Leeds being forever cursed and forever one step away from, from catastrophe. Um, I mean, they, they've taken it on the chin, I have to say, and they, they've been pretty philosophical about it. And I, they are certainly one of the clubs and this rather goes without saying but one of the clubs who absolutely want this season to be played to a finish I mean yep. there is no question at all that 
of, of Leeds supporting or even indulging the idea of the season being voided. And I think for now that they're, they're trying to keep the powder dry, they're, they're trying their best just to keep quiet, to, to crack on and, and to wait for things to kick off again. But they're like everybody else. They're in the dark and they, they, they see the statements from the EFL and the Premier League. They, they discuss this amongst themselves, but everybody is at the mercy of the, the virus, you know, the virus receding and of, um, of society going back to something approaching normality. And, and because the government can't say when that is, Leeds have no idea either. So yeah, hugely, hugely disappointed and and without doubt concerned as well about the possibility that this might be snatched away. But I think very much trying not to think like that. And, and just a final thing then, what what is the situation with Bielsa? I know in your article you talk about how he's he's not really having that much contact with the players, is he? He's just in, in his flat in Weatherby doing lots of analysis. What about his long-term future, if we can think long-term at the moment? They say he is available on WhatsApp to the, the players and I think he only discovered WhatsApp when he came over to Leeds and, and found that he did need to use a, a mobile. But he won't <laughs> um, he won't engage with them much and, and he doesn't day-to-day. They, they have virtually no personal relationship with him. It's it's all very distant outside of um, coaching and, and um, video analysis sessions. And as, as strange as that sounds, the the bottom line is that it has worked. If you looked at, look at the results, the, the players have, have coped with that fine and, and it just is how he is you know he, he is eccentric he is he is off the wall and and in, in that sense they're, they're very used to it he's got a contract to the end of the season um, and he's going to fall into this large category of people who are either on loan or, or you know or out of contract um, at the end of June as it stands and there is I think going to have to be some negotiation across the board um, with football clubs about how they're, they're going to handle this I mean I would think him being the, the kind of honourable guy that he is he would not want to walk away from this um, if the season needed to be extended and I don't think that would be would be I don't think he would consider doing that. I mean, I was told that that he'd offered the um, the club to forgo all of his wages, you know, in, in the form of a deferral, not in a pay cut, but to forgo all of his wages until this is done and dusted again, just to help financially. And and him and his staff were part of the um, the agreed deferral last week. Um, longer term, you never can tell with him. I'm I'm absolutely convinced from speaking to people close to him that that he will stay if Leeds are promoted. I don't think there's any doubt about that. No expectation at all of him staying if if Leeds face a third season in the championship but whether or not his his view on that would change were Leeds to be denied promotion by a voided season I don't know um, and I think that's a question that would would have to be asked but I think in the short term and, and if the season is to be finished off the, the expectation will be that, that he would definitely be here and, and you know like anybody else I cannot see him walking out with 37 games played and promotion right there for the taking Phil thank you very much for coming on we will talk Cheers, soon Phil. Thanks very much, guys. Now, there's a fascinating piece on The Athletic at the moment from Simon Hughes. It details how the Liverpool Academy has uh, adapted, really, caught up, if you want, to 21st century Britain. Let's talk uh, to Simon now. This this is partly in response to the rise of one player, is it, Simon? Yeah, well, they, they signed this player, James Balagizi, um five years ago from Manchester City when he was 11 years old. Um, he'd come from uh, DR Congo, uh, as I think, as a six or seven-year-old, and had um, you know made a real impression on the scouts at City pretty quickly, um, and that they were really keen to to, to keep him. But um, I think his his parents had seen sort of. You know, the, the, or looked at the experiences of other players at City and um, just realised it was going to be so much harder to break through into the first team. So Liverpool 
put in a you know persuasive argument to, to take him to to Mel uh, to to um to Kirby, you know, arguing that the pathway between Kirby and um, and Melwood was a lot clearer, and you know this this sort of whole uh, process made Liverpool think about how they recruit players at a local level because for the last sort of five to six years they've been really focusing on on um, getting players in at the age of six. Uh, which I know sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But um, the the the, uh, the the club in the past had, had sort of recruited the higher end players at the ages of thirteen and fourteen, players who were a lot closer to the first team. But under Alex Inglethorpe, they they identified that the best players over the years had tended to be players who'd been at the club for a much longer period of time. Um, and not only that, that sort of brings a, a certain degree of a certain guarantee, I guess, of loyalty as well, because players who they brought in from other places had since moved on to other clubs for a variety of different reasons. So they put in big efforts to get to get players in um, from a from a young, much younger age, and this is where they realised with James Balagiesi that the, you know they're sort of overlooking really uh, new communities, which um, which uh, are spread across the northwest, which includes obviously West African communities, uh, Central African communities, and and uh, Eastern European communities as well. So Liverpool now, I've got scouts working um, with with backgrounds from those places, with the hope of attracting a lot more players uh, from different parts of the northwest, because uh, they all bring, I guess, you know, different talents, different skill sets. And Liverpool is a city which which um, which is still predominantly white and British. So for Liverpool not to not to be doing that, I think it'd be you could accuse them of. Um, you know, being being complacent and, and not looking outside uh, the, the boundaries of the city, I think would would inhibit the process uh, of, of getting the best players at the age of six. So it makes sense on a lot of different levels, I think. And and if you recruit at six, which still um, uh, uh, the dad in me thinks it's nuts, to be honest with you, but I, I know they're all doing it, so so fine. But um, if you recruit under eleven, then players could only live an hour away but that does take into account a, a lot of the greater manchester area hmm. yeah it does yeah um i mean it, it it goes up to an hour and a half after the age of 11 so manchester is obviously within the the, the boundaries of what liverpool can do um you know and, and manchester is it you know greater manchester i guess is a much um much bigger place than, than greater merseyside hmm. with a higher population, which means that if Liverpool aren't looking there, looking to compete with Manchester United and Manchester City, you know they're potentially missing out on a lot of players. Bear in mind, you know, I think it's uh, there's no, you know, I guess statistics which are which are hard around this, but you know, players tend to come from the urban areas. So to to overlook Manchester, which has changed a lot over the last sort of ten to fifteen to twenty years, I know Alex Inglethorpe has uh, obviously had background in London where he, he was involved at the academy at Tottenham and one of the things that he noticed at Tottenham was that there were players who were coming into the country maybe a little bit later you know maybe 10 11 yeah who had been in war-torn countries and actually had lots of football ability but they were being sort of um missed really by by the talent spotters of of, of clubs around London and it was only you know um in his latter years at Tottenham the clubs were started to look into that so that's another thing that Liverpool I think they can see a lot of untapped potential in in communities, you know, the Iraqi community, the Syrian community, uh, e- even in Liverpool as well, where 
there's there's a big immigration population in the, in the immigrant population in the, the south of the city, which is I think previously it's fair to say has been overlooked as a place where you might be able to get natural young footballers. But Liverpool now, such as the um, such as the competition, that they're, they're really they've, they've opened their their eyes to the possibilities. Uh, and and you mentioned, and I think this is really interesting, actually, the the hiring of a couple of scouts with um, different backgrounds, with a Polish background, with an African background, to to be at the heart of their own communities, to then bring these players in. Yeah, I think that I think that's really important yeah. um, because you know a lot of the uh, it was, I was told that a lot of the, the sort of the the, the 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 these communities, I guess, don't have the historical. Um, understanding of football necessarily to, to the level that maybe people in Britain do. So the name Liverpool might not mean so much to somebody who's, I guess, been in Syria for the last you know thirty years of their lives. They've got other priorities. They might not. The families might not even be interested in football. So trying to get people on sides and make people understand, you know, the, the significance of playing for Liverpool and the attraction of playing for Liverpool, particularly when there are other clubs, as I said, like Manchester United, Manchester City, who. Have I guess much more persuasive arguments. But, um, but the other thing, the other thing with that, Simon, which I find quite interesting, when I read your article as well, is um, you talk about at the age that the, the the kids may come to the country. But if you come as an eight year old, say, and live somewhere within Greater Manchester, then you're not going to be aware really of the Manchester Liverpool rivalry. And therefore, no, but it's an, it's an important point, isn't it, really? And that therefore, yeah. if Liverpool come knocking for you, it doesn't become a an actual dilemma. Whereas I think if you are born to Mancunian parents or Merseyside parents and the clubs in the other city come for you, then that actually becomes quite a dilemma, I think, for, for the parents and, and the kids maybe because of the rivalry between the two cities. It's a great point, yeah. I think it's another point which I wish I'd made in the article. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Part two. Yeah, but it, it, it's true. Um, I mean, it, as I said, there's a lot of sort of... It's almost like a blank canvas, I think, the way um, Liverpool and other clubs... You know, it's not just saying Liverpool are doing this. All the clubs are doing this. Manchester City, they reach now. They, they, they scout on Merseyside all the time. I mean, we only need to go back to, I guess, Bobby Duncan, his story, who obviously since went to Liverpool and has left Liverpool... Manchester City managed to get Bobby Duncan to Manchester City, even though he was brought up a Liverpool fan. You know, there's 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 outreach programs going on across Merseyside, which both the Manchester clubs use. So and beyond, you know, it's not like it and beyond, of course. So it's not it's not like Liverpool. I think it's just seeing. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just because Merseyside is, I guess, such a proud place, and Liverpool fans are so desperate to see scouts in the team. But it, it, it almost seems like Liverpool. This is an unusual thing for Liverpool to do. Which they've been doing for you know for a couple of years now, but it's only now that the operation's sort of ramping up. Um, of course, you know with, with everything that's going on in the world, uh, it'd be interesting to see whether whether that changes those priorities. Because I'd imagine you know immigration and everything else is going to possibly change over the next uh, five years, uh, or at least slow down with the movement of people. So that could be you know that 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 could put a, a potentially a bit of a, a break on the the possibilities for Liverpool and other city, cities and. And, and the, I guess the newer communities that exist there. It's, it certainly seems the next sort of step, the latest step in the youth football arms race. And that may become all the more important with the financial um, issues that may arise from the current crisis. Because um, 
I've been helping out with a piece that we're hoping to run this week on Chelsea's recruitment and one of their strengths is youth recruitment and the feeling around Europe from people I've spoken to is that um, in no small part it's down to the fact that they pay more money than most (laughs) other clubs and perhaps that won't wash so much anymore Um, and perhaps this is kind of the next step the next stage in the process of of trying to get the edge on on um, on your rivals. Yeah, I think you know to take it, I guess back to Liverpool that that was something that they tried to be a part of. You know, several years ago under a different regime, you know they'd they'd spent more money on sort of as I said the 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 older teenagers um, weren't afraid you know to to give them big wages. Um, and where, where Liverpool fell behind, certainly at a local level uh, with Everton, was because obviously the focus on on sort of the, the, the older teenagers uh, from other clubs and bringing them in meant that there wasn't as much money from Liverpool to, to go about and and, um, and 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 I guess compete with Everton. You know, the, I remember speaking to, to to one person who told me about uh, there was a, the player Liverpool have got at the moment, Leighton Clarkson, who is originally from Clitheroe, who was just right on the boundaries, you know, of whether it was possible for him to sign for, for Liverpool. And the, the club, uh, the people at the club wanted them to play for Liverpool so desperately that they actually took uh, turns in going to pick him up from Clitheroe on the days where his parents couldn't bring him because I think one of them couldn't drive. So um, that was a reflection, I guess, of the lack of money that existed at Liverpool, whereas there was a big debate at Liverpool about how much money they should be putting at, at um at these players, I think there's other clubs which had travel exp- uh, travel budgets of five, as much as £500 a week. I didn't actually put that in the piece, but it is relevant to the point that you're making. Whereas Liverpool, uh, this has gone back a few years now, realised that they had to compete with that just to get at the negotiating table with, with some of these young players. Because obviously, you know, it might, might seem straightforward, mightn't it, you know, to, to travel from Blackpool you know, go and play for Liverpool if you're from Blackpool. Sounds great, but getting there, it's still a bit big undertaking. You know, an hour a day, parents going up and down the motorway. So this is all the the extra mileage and the extra um, the extra money that's needed to make sure that the player signs. So I, I think now, you know, there's going to be an increasing amount of creative ways that clubs try and target their players. You're right to mention Chelsea because I think Chelsea is a club that that Liverpool, uh, you know, from afar sort of admire the practices that they've been. Imposing there, I think all the the focus of Chelsea tends to be on the money that you spend, but they actually do a lot of good things there as well. So clubs are always watching each other; they're always trying to figure out what the other one's doing. <laughs> as we found out, <laughs> <laughs> Simon, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. See you soon. Thanks, Simon. Hughes. Cheers, sir. That's it for this week. Make sure you subscribe to the Athletic. You can read all the great articles from the likes of David, Phil, Simon, and our team of writers across the Athletic. And by listening to us, you get that 40% discount on subscription if you go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. All of the podcasts are completely free. Ad-free versions are available to subscribers. That's it. We'll be back next week. Thanks very much for listening.